in the darkest worlds that ever were. The only thing that brings light are stories. Those stories are kept in one place. The tiny bookcase. Hello, story seekers. I'm Nico. I'm Ben. And you're listening to The Tiny Bookcase. For this episode, we're joined by Hugo Award-winning author and podcaster. Her success in both fields make her one of the worst-kept secrets in science fiction and fantasy publishing. We are honoured to welcome Mer Lafferty. Hello, Mer. Hey, guys. How are you? <laughs> really good. Really good. It's, it's absolutely epic to have you on the uh, on the bookcase, which is fun- yeah, really fantastic. So thank you for agreeing to come on. Thank you for having me. It's uh, you, your your stuff sounds a lot of fun, so I'm eager to see how this turns out. Excellent. Yeah, the fun is the fun is the aim for sure. A bit of uh, demystifying writing going on, which is uh, always fun. I I'm just still slightly weirded out that you said it's good to have you on the bookcase, which bookcase. makes it sound like a physical thing. <laughs> you do know what the name of this podcast is, right? <laughs> I, I vaguely. Who are you? Where am I? <laughs> So a little bit, um, I think we're a little bit overawed, actually, Mo, because you are, uh, ex- well, extremely prolific and successful in this field that we are discussing. Um, how have you found being, like, juggling both podcasting and authoring over the last, like, 15 years or so? It's not great. I mean, I've been, I've been dealing with ADHD and only realized it recently, and people would ask me how I do so many things, like they're impressed, and I'm thinking, well... Several things are on fire while I work on one thing. And then I finish that and I run around and try to put out all the rest of the fires and then work on something else. And so it hasn't been the healthiest thing, but I'm trying to work into something a little bit like writing in the morning and doing podcasting or streaming or uh, editing in the afternoon. It does sound stressful, but it sounds also like you've, you're sort of starting to get it in hand, which is really nice to hear. I'm working on it. Oh, brilliant. Well, I'm glad to, I'm glad to hear that. Um, well, it is, uh, at least from the outside, it's, it's very impressive and we're very happy to have you on, as we said. So um, thank you again. Um, how have you found the, uh, I know we spoke a little bit before we started recording about, uh, you know, the difficulties with uh, what it's like getting used to going and doing things now. Um, how have you found the, uh, the, the pandemic? And it's, it's going out is exhausting still. Yeah. Had to do a two family oriented trips, one to get my kid into college and one to go to a, uh, a wedding that everyone had to be vaccinated to go to and both those two weekends back to back was just brutal it was people and traveling and first pl- flight since 2020 so or early 2020 so it was all very, just very tiring it's going to take a while to get back into the swing of things i think so i think the sort of threshold for what is having to put a bit more effort in for everyone has forcibly dropped so all of a sudden, you know, uh, going out on Friday, Saturday and Sunday before was, oh, well, with a bit of a push, I can do all three. Now, just, you know, doing the Saturday, you think, oh, it's, there's, there's so much more to socializing than I remember there being. And people are very difficult to communicate with. And I have to remember to take all the extra things. And it's just, yeah, stress, lots of stress, lovely stress. Yeah. 
I know we've had some people on that have said that uh, it actually gave them more time to write and an, an excuse in which to with which to bury their head in their work. Um, but I know that's not the case all around. Um, well, I think probably we should uh, have some stories. We've um, we've got three uh, for today, which is going to be really cool. Uh, is it possible for me to go last again? I know I was asked and I said I didn't care, but is it possible to go last? Absolutely. It absolutely is. is. Okay. Thank you very much. No problem at all. Um, so we're going to have Mer last then. And I think I'll go in the middle. I like being sandwiched, so you're going at the front oh. end. Okay, thank you. Thank you for that image. Listen, I picture myself on a spiritual level as jam. That's that's what I'm <laughs> saying. Uh, right, the prompt that we've all written to for this week, which has been chosen uh, by Mer, is underground. Take it away, Ben. Underground. I have seen it from time to time, thrusting out over the waves. The silver of its construction has been used generously to form broad arches which leap away from the shore, their foundations reaching all the way to the sea's bed. The waters around it are calm when I see it, so perhaps it is always so. Every bit which we pull from the mountain goes towards the continued construction of that bridge we will never truly see. Yet I do see it sometimes. I see it when I close my eyes on the darkness of the mine, and before I open them to that same pitch blackness. There is a moment when I wake from dreams of it, and I think I can still see its fading shape in the shadows. The candles of the overseers flicker away such notions as we are herded from our sleep into the darkness of the day. We shuffle in crews through tight tunnels which bend our backs. The ladders and platforms which thread precariously through the mountain bear our weight begrudgingly. The air we breathe, already thin, is thick with the dust of our labour. With each breath I feel my chest pulling on the tendrils of it, grasping for purchase like it is the frayed end of a rope slung down to a drowning man. I do not know the name of the man who told me of the bridge. He had lost the use of it and had no will to recall it. He spoke to us of a place called Spain, and how the bridge we built of our silver would span an ocean to reach it. I do not know of Spain, and could not ever picture it, but I could see that bridge. Its shape and brilliance has only grown in my mind since then. Some months after he told us of the bridge, as we trudged to our tasks, the man with no name stepped from a platform. He did not cry out, as his body was lost. I was glad he had spoken to me before he fell. Our warren of indentations in the belly of the mountain continued to welcome us greedily. We slithered on our bellies to into the individual tunnels we made for ourselves, always seeking that glittering vein in the mountain. The candle strapped to our faces burned the air and stained our sweaty skin with wax burns. Yet with it we could see the rock and earth which swaddled us. When we felt our tunnels beginning to shift around us, we crawled backwards, wiggling our bodies away from the crushing death of a collapsing shaft. That tightening grasp of the vengeful mountain is one few of us survive. Those that do receive only more of this life as their reward. When we find what the overseers are looking for, it is time for us all to dig. Widening that small tunnel into a cavern in which our picks can crack open the veins. When the silver flows, I always feel a relief. That relief comes from knowing that I am a part of something. Something impossibly grand in both scale and sight. I'm a part of that bridge. 
Each shift in the mountain lasts for several months, and at the end of them we are brought back out into the strange light of day, until we are required again below. On the surface we carry heavy sacks of raw silver from the mouths of the mine into the town. It's hard work, but many prefer it as there is no true darkness to it. As we work I tell the newcomers of the bridge. Few of them understand my words, but I see some of them understand me. I have survived the mountain six times now, but it has gradually stolen my strength from me. I should fear what will happen when I march back down into that darkness. But I find that I am not afraid. You see, when I sleep upon the surface, I cannot see the bridge. Its shining arches await me in the only place I will ever see it. I wonder that if, perhaps, I were to walk on the bridge, what I would find at its end. Spain would be a new world to me, and perhaps the people would call out my name to praise me for the bridge. I would wear clothes and jewellery like a Spaniard instead of my rags and chains. I could rest there in the clean air, surrounded by food and happiness which surely silver brings. Yet I know I will never walk upon the bridge or see it with my waking eyes. I will seek it instead within the mountain, alone and in the dark. Crikey. Nice, I'm... eerie. Unbelievably bleak. Well, I thought I'd thought, you know, set us off on a happy note. <laughs> it's, uh, I, I've said unbelievably bleak there, but in its own way, it's kind of obtusely uplifting, isn't it? This, this ability to find hope and, like, the vision of this bridge in such a perpetual darkness hellscape. Is uh, oh, it's something, isn't it? <laughs> Quite a hollow hope, hope, though, isn't it? It's not. It's a. It's a. It's a hope built on uh, pain, madness, and auction deprivation. <laughs> well, I mean, you, you did have a line in there, didn't you? You said they uh, they receive only more of this life as a reward for surviving, yeah, and yeah. that's that's horrible. That's just... yeah, it's man you are. <laughs> it's uh. Extremely unpleasant. It's, is it based uh, uh, in? Was it something they actually tried to do build a build a Wacken Great Bridge? Or was this no, no. The, the the bridge itself is always a um, has always just been a turn of phrase, but it's um, it's it's roughly it's sort of talking about and based on the um, the uh, colonial Spanish silver mines in Bolivia, um, and the the saying went something along the lines of that they pulled enough silver out of Bolivia to build a bridge from South America to Spain. Because uh, there was okay. so much of it. But then also the amount of dead that, it, you know, the, the amount of bones that they left behind in terms of all the people that died in those mines could build another bridge back again. Um, and uh, yeah, I think I think they, the sort of conservative estimates reckon that in about like 100 years or whatever, about 8 million people died in these Spanish silver mines. Um, which is Fucking a huge gen it's a it's a massive genocide, yeah. Yeah. Yikes. Um, yeah. And uh, they yeah. these workers would have been like uh, Native Americans or um slaves from Africa and these kind of people. So it's it's really grim, um and not something at least in the British school system that we're taught about. Um I don't know whether that's that rings true for the States at all, no. Do you get taught about like Spanish colonial stuff in south america a little bit 
Um, I am far from school <laughs> in, in the terms of years, um, and history was never a part of uh, what I studied heavily, which I regret, honestly. But I do remember being taught about the um, Spanish landing in South America and doing their thing that the English did in North America. Yep, yeah, pretty much. So it's a grim bit of uh, human history. To go with all the other grim bits, I guess. So I time. find a lot of it does tend to be. Yeah. It's yeah. Uh, rarely uplifting. <laughs> mm. So I, I was sort of wondering how to approach this prompt um, after you uh, picked it, Mur. And for whatever reason, I was reminded of this, of this thing, yeah, this bit of history, from a story I was told waiting at a bus stop in rural Cumbria for an hour by a stranger. Um, because the because there's so much time between public transport in that rural part of England, you end up talking to strangers in a way that you wouldn't anywhere else in the country. Um, and for whatever reason, we started talking about history, and he'd just come back from Bolivia, having been to this mine, uh, which I think is... Um, I'm going to absolutely butcher the pronunciation, but I think it's Patuzzi, is the, is the name of the Bolivian town where this mine is. And... Uh, I mean, this was 16 years ago that he told me this story. I can't remember his face or his name, but the uh, this idea of these poor slaves like crawling on their bellies into collapsing mine shafts to try and pull silver for an empire has really stuck with me. You know, I worry about you, man. <laughs> <laughs> just on a on a real deep emotional level, sometimes. I'd like to also state that as a as a proper southerner, I've never spoken to anyone outside of my house ever. <laughs> no, it's just I I feel like you carry a lot of I, maybe it's because you're into history, but you're just full of really horrible stories. <laughs> well, yeah, pretty much. Um, but uh, is it? It's it's fun when you can turn it into something like this, where you can sort of work through it a bit. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't say this is something I've thought about every day, but it has stuck with me to the point that when when I heard the prompt underground, I was just like, oh, there we go then. We'll go yeah. we'll be going in that direction. Which was which was really nice. Um in terms of just sort of uh breaking it down a bit, like I feel like the um the sort of narrator's voice doesn't quite fit what a historical interpretation of a slave from that mind would have spoken or thought like. Um so I'm not entirely it's, sure it's how we go. Flowery. It's very it's it's not as flowery as it could be, but it's quite flowery. No. Um, uh, I think it's a difficult one just because obviously you and I both write from a place of privilege, which means that yeah. it is quite difficult to find that narrative voice. And especially without it becoming almost like pastiche, if you get what I mean. So it's well, it's yeah. hard to do it sensitively. I'm not saying I think you're incapable of it. But it is a difficult line to walk. Yes, I think I think that would be something that I'd try and handle a bit better on a uh, on a rewrite. Um, yeah, or give more context for the for the character. But it's very short; it's eight hundred and two words or something. So it's just inside our our bracket. Um, so it's sort of for me it somehow feels like it's got a little bit too much fat on it and also not enough bones to it so yeah i wouldn't say i'm entirely happy with it but it's um it was definitely fun to write it and also fun to perform it for you so 
Definitely some fun turns of phrase in there, I'd say. Mm-hmm. I, I I will say I wrote down, uh, we're herded from our sleep into the darkness of the day, which is a really nice way of showing, uh, you know, how their underground existence has inverted their perspective. It's really, yeah, yeah lovely. Really, really nice. Oh, I'm glad you liked that. I did very much. Very glad. Well, um, Nika, you'll be up next then. Let's, uh, let's see what you've got. Righto. Underground. The woods are never truly silent. Not in any meaningful sense. There's much talk of falling trees and if they make a noise when no one's there to hear them. But this is a very human idea. There's always someone listening in the woods, almost certainly if they've made a home of the falling tree, and are making very loud sounds about their good crockery as the collapse begins. The relative quiet of the wood was this morning disturbed by a sharp tap-tapping of a walking cane against the deep-set door that covered Moley's home. This was most unusual, as Moley was not expecting anyone to come to his burrow. So it was, with some apprehension, that he made his way to the front door and cracked it slightly before peering about its edge. There, in the doorway, stood an old friend. Badger! he said, surprise welling up in him. Badger was not well known for taking visitors, and even less so for making a habit of becoming a visitor himself. I hope you don't mind, young Molly. I thought it best to come and see you snout to snout. Molly was taken aback. More unusual still than the occasion of a visit was the soft manner in which Badger had spoken. No! Of course, please, do come in. I shall fill a pot of tea. When Molly returned, he found Badger in his well-worn armchair. Its edges, paleness, betrayed it as far older than Molly would care to admit. The paws of Badger were gripping the sides of a small pictograph. His thumbs gently rubbed the gilded frame. It was of Toad Hall. Before it sat Toadie's marvellous motor-car. Toadie himself was perched in the front seat, his goggles pressed firm against his eyes. Molly was in the back seat, his knuckles pale as ash as he gripped the motor-car's side, and against his back, in comfort, was Badger's mighty paw. And there, in the front seat, his smile broad and arms flung high, was Ratty. Terrible shame, that, eh? Badger's voice rumbled as from the depth of his cavernous home. Did you see him before he uh... went? Yes, I'm rather afraid I did. Ratty had returned to their home, steaming drunk one night, although he swore to Moly he'd not touched a drop of mushroom wine. Those days were left behind with his riverboat. He'd promised. But he'd never awoken on the morning that followed. Common for war voles, who find themselves too long ashore, I suppose. Badger nodded sagely. Something bound to happen. He handed the pictograph back to Molly. It was large, for his eyesight had never been up to much and now it was obscured by the sting of tears. 
As he moved to place the image once more in its home above the mantel, the soft sound of a china spout tapping against a teacup awoke him from his musings. I hope you don't mind. I couldn't wait another moment for tea. Badger was holding out a cup for Molly, who took it and sipped at the warming brew, some vain hope thinking it could fill the hole his partner had left. Frightfully sorry, Badger, to get myself all worked up like this. Molly rubbed at his snout. A few soft snuffles made the end of it twitch. He sat himself on the footstool that accompanied his armchair. The thought of settling into Ratty's favourite chair was still an impossibility. It was still his chair, after all. He'd only left it unsat for a manner of months. Badger looked thoughtful, raised a hand as if to offer some comfort to Molly, and then thought better of it. For some time they sat in silence, the soft sipping of tea and ticking of the grandfather clock the only sounds that seemed to penetrate their sadness. I'm rather afraid I fear we may both be headed the same way, young Molly. Badger straightened himself in the chair before deflating almost immediately. It's young Master Toad, I'm afraid he's... The words caught in Badger's throat, as though entwined in some terrible net. He coughed and swallowed the trap. I found him this morning. Cold as snow. Molly couldn't believe it. Daren't believe it. No one he'd ever met had the vibrancy and energy of Toad of Toad Hall. The very idea that the woods could keep growing and, and the world keep spinning without his presence and it was unfathomable. How? He muttered although he'd not meant to. It's just his words were struggling to come up. His chest felt tight. Tighter even than when he'd found his lover still as lake water. I... I can't breathe. Ah, took its time, I see, but never mind, eh? The old badger had leaned forward in his chair, and his eyes were fixed on Molly. Molly wanted to look away, though, try as he might, he couldn't turn his head. He tried to lift his hands to cover his face, but they moved not a hair's breadth. Funny stuff, that. Seems to have worked better now than it did on Ratty, though. Ha! Stupid name for a vole, that. He shook his great head back and forth. Incredible, really, what you can make out of a few mushrooms and some herbs. The woods truly are a marvellous place. It made the fool seem so deep in his cups. Amazing to watch, so sudden. Of course, he wouldn't have expected anything from me, would he? Not from old Badger. His stare seemed to penetrate Molly. It burrowed into him in a cruel mimicry of their surroundings. Why? Molly managed. His chest barely rose and fell. He could feel tightness around his body, as though he was being bound in death's shroud. Why? Badger stood with a start. Molly's chair slid back away from him, bumped gently against the cabinets that lined the wall. I'll tell you why, Mole. 
You never met Lord Toad, but I did. I knew us in them vaults, too. When he died, I raised young Master Toad myself, the little shit. He spat a wad of phlegm into the fire, which hissed like a snake. Years I put into that dim-witted, shallow-minded amphibian, and for what? He seemed to swell with anger. For his will to show that all would be shared in the unlikely demise of the little amphibious bastard by Messrs. Moley, Ratty and Badger. One adventure was worth a lifetime of care. Well, not to me it isn't. Toad Hall and its fortune are mine by rights. No more skulking underground for old Badger. It's time for my place in the sun. Moley wanted to spit an insult. To call him a monster, to ask why he would truly do such a thing. To do so for money must surely be a jest. They had all they needed, didn't they? So I'll be going then, Moley. You'll likely suffocate soon, if I'm not mistaken. I tell you not to bother coming to visit, but you disrespectful little rodents probably wouldn't listen. And with that, Badger of Toad Hall turned and left leaving only the sound of a slammed door to fill the burrow. Moley stared fixedly at the seat of his greatest friend and dearest companion. They'd be together again soon. Underground. Bloody hell, that was incredibly well realised. Well, I'm not really sure I could go after those two. <laughs> I'm not going to lie, The Wind of the Willows did most of the work for me there. Yeah. <laughs> I had an entire novel's worth of backstory. I was, was going to say, that's like, true. Do you reckon that would, that would be approved by the Kenneth uh, Graham uh, estate? <laughs> not, and if they don't have, if the copyrights run out, they doesn't matter. Oh, yeah. Has the copyright run out? It was, was it 19? Let's hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think it was really early 20th century, whenever it was. So it probably has run out. Although, isn't the mouse constantly trying to extend how long copyright lasts for? Yes, it keep, yes. it will forever until somebody beats it. Yeah, you got to beat the mouse. Yeah. And Sony um, keep using their own rules to keep hold of Spider-Man, so it's fine. <laughs> uh, I absolutely loved that. I thought that was really excellent. It sort of, all the different voices that you brought to it, and um, obviously, yeah, the wind in the willows with, with, a, with a hot take. It, it almost had like... Um, I don't know whether it was just the voices you were using, but you know the movie Hot Fuzz? This kind of murders in this yeah. village sort of situation. It had a bit of that to it, um, but but sort of a bit more serious and sad. Um, I had showed a... it to my to my yeah. partner earlier, and she said, well, yeah. you know, "What voices are you going to do for the for the badger and the mole?" Because you know she knows me, and I, I did them. She went, oh, it's just it's just Hot Fuzz, isn't it?" So oh, there we go. Then. <laughs> I'm really good. <laughs> You've been added. Uh, what a fun time. Yeah, I really like the, the retelling of, of stories like that, or, or expand, expanding on them. Because it, it does give you a little bit of relaxation with the whole novel and backstory, like you said, but yeah. um, you can take it in new ways. And, you know, again, if it's out of copyright, it's not considered fan fiction. I don't <laughs> know if it's considered fan fiction. I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm not a lawyer. I don't know, he, he did just ship uh, Ratty and uh, Moly. Which, right. Well, tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> no, not at all. Excellent. 
Oh, I, th- yeah. I think they'd be more upset about that in the, <laughs> the uh, recently post-Victorian <laughs> world, wouldn't they? Then, <laughs> no, the badger could be a murderous bastard, but those those oh. vermin better not be gay. <laughs> oh no! Uh, you could still see them getting. I, in fact, I think you just. I think it's. It actually added to the story that Victorians would get so angry at that. <laughs> oh, um, it, was, it was great fun though. Really. I, this is the first time I've done anything like this with sort of playing with someone else's universe like that, and I really enjoyed it. Really? Yeah, yeah. I I found it. I I thought I knew the story of Wind in the Willows, and then a cursory gurgle, gurgle, a cursory <laughs> Google. <laughs> yeah, a cursory gurgle, and then I went on to Google, and I discovered that I didn't really remember any of it properly. No. And I, I sort of had a vague idea of how I wanted it to go. And then I was reminded that Badger was a sort of miserable git and who'd helped bring up mm. Toad of Toad Hall. And I just, yeah, it all fell into place. It made perfect sense for me. How I ended up there from underground, I guess, I was... because Mole. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I, I mean, I was about to say, I, I think that's a really um, excellent interpretation of the prompt, underground, you know, to use it as a leaping off point for something inside your imagination and inside the sort of um, childhood zeitgeist almost. It it was was really cool and and very well written um, and performed. The whole thing was a... It felt to me like a real tour de force, so well done. Oh yeah, the voices were great. Thank you. Definitely, yeah. Poor Molly, eh? Poor Molly, (laughs) yeah. Very sad. Uh, just oh yeah, you could really see it. You really brought it to life. Uh, that's that's going to stick with me. I think stick with me longer than uh, slaves mining silver for sure. <laughs> I, I mean, one of them definitely had a more profound impact on the world. But in You're the right. ratty's chair was an important <laughs> thing. Yeah. Oh, so many people have looked at it in dismay. I've got to ask that a lot of that was very sort of quintessentially Middle English. And I'd be really interested to know how that came across for you, Mer. Like, a lot of it is just, it's sort of predicated on knowing how the British function socially, like awkwardly pouring a cup of tea for someone, because it's the only way we know. Right. Well, I'm I'm not the best person to ask, because I did uh, study English literature, so I probably have better knowledge or more comfort with... Yeah. Uh, some of the very specific ways y'all use the language but um so yeah i didn't nothing like really stuck out as as weird or or confusing to me well american listeners feel free to tweet at us and tell us yes we're we're british oddballs yeah i actually i actually think you made it very accessible like i think it was very clear that you you mentioned you mentioned the bit with the tea service like i think that was very clear that, that there was some sort of problem at that moment and it does foreshadow that he's poisoned him yeah so i think it works in t- inside the story okay. just as a as a construction yeah um i think anyone anyone reading or listening to that would get that there was something odd happened at that point they might not necessarily get the exact implications of it but i think it would still work for your story for sure oh, i shall i should take that on board but i'm i'm very very glad that you both enjoyed it However, it is time, Mer. Mm. You have been called. (laughs) 
Uh, I'm actually, I'm really excited to hear your story. <laughs> so, whenever you're ready. This is something I've been thinking about for a long time. And uh, when we talked about underground, it just kind of snapped into place for me. Um, I'll use the same title you guys did. Underground. When Grandma's house on Earth had gotten Wi-Fi installed, it killed the last of the fairies. Or so she said. She had a lot of opinions on the dead fairies, and now she lived on a dead planet. Definitely no fairies here. I asked her once if fairies needed oxygen to live. She waved me off. If Mars had had fairies, they could live underground, she proclaimed. The brownies and gremlins would love it here. It had minimal underground lines, unlike Earth. Fairies could easily avoid them. If they stumbled across a connection, it would be no more than you or I would feel with a static shock. Back home in Ireland, fiber optic lines and the fair folk couldn't mix. My dad's gift of Wi-Fi had enraged her. She complained for a week, let me tell you. She said when cable TV and internet and the high-speed internet and the cell signals and then Wi-Fi came along, it became a tightening spiderweb of danger for the fair folk. Many retreated to more and more remote areas, she said. Even a charming small town being too much of a danger. A friend of mine from school once asked, I didn't think people believed in fairies anymore. But my grandma did. Problem on Mars, of many, was that they needed humans for the strength of belief, for someone to simply mess with. Without humans, fairies got bored. I lived with Grandma to get her settled on Mars. I frowned at her shiny new laptop with far more computing power than she would ever need. What's your password, Grandma? I asked, trying to unlock it. I'm not supposed to say, she shouted from the kitchen where she was watching a cooking show on the screen of her refrigerator, which had a constant stream of cooking shows from Earth. Grandma, you can tell me. We're related, I protested. Fine, it's my birthday. I rolled my eyes. Grandma, that's highly insecure. You mean you forgot my birthday? She yelled. It has to be something I remember. I'm too old for that memory implant your generation has, she said. I'll put down something you remember, I said. After I got our Wi-Fi connected and hooked up the laptop, connected her phone and all the other smart devices, I went to admin and changed her password. No fairies on Mars, exclamation point. Goddamn bread didn't rise, Grandma shouted. What I would give for some fairies. How disappointing, her fridge soothed. Would you like a glass of milk? The small amount of tryptophan will have a calming effect. Mary, when will this thing learn how to offer me bourbon and not milk? She asked, coming into the room. And I thought these things were supposed to make humidity perfect for baking. Sometimes the error is in the user, Grandma, I said, and dodged the dish towel she threw at me. I got you all hooked up. Here's your password. Memorize it. Remember, anywhere there's a zero, there's an O, you should write a zero. When there's an A, you should use a four. Then you're just writing half a sentence that's easy to remember, but it's secure. That's a funny phrase, she said, looking at the words, no fairies on Mars. Did you know my grandmother also believed in fairies? Of course I know that. The story was why I was living with her, not the whole reason. I wasn't a monster who was just sitting there using life support to care for Grandma. I was there to help with the terraforming, too, and to help with her. But that meant I had to hear her stories. Of course I know that, she mocked. They kept me company when I was a child. They cared for me. I know, you've told me, I grumbled. I put the kettle on for tea. 
Then I went to her tiny linen closet. It was full of bolts of cloth, synthetics Grandma had invented, sending her among the first terraformers of Mars. Just some old cloth. I took a napkin with frayed edges. The next day at work, I went to the hydroponics and snipped a piece of synthetic linen and wove it among the roots of each plant. No one saw me. I'm not sure what they would have said if they had. That night, Grandma had said the fairies had killed the Wi-Fi. The night after, the fridge began showing a television show from 1998. The night after that, we were on a generator. Grandma said nothing, just glared at me. I said something weak about the central power grid and how things take time and we might be in trouble and asphyxiate, and she just shook her head. She finally said, you did the linen, but the milk, did you put out the milk? Grandma had revolutionized textiles by mixing natural fibers with plastics just to get the right weight and texture and strength. Her first attempts as a chemist were made with her own linen in her house, some old fabric that came from dresses and tablecloths that she had inherited from her grandmother and possibly further back. Some of them she didn't even know how old they were. She kept these prototypes. My legacy, she had said. Mars Central was in a panic. People were sure we would all die of asphyxiation while Grandma and I sat with our generator and I heard more stories of the old days that her grandmother had told her. That night, I went out before lockdown and put small bowls of milk around the greenhouse, the power grid room, and the hall outside our room. People who worry about asphyxiation don't worry about cleaning up bowls of milk. The next day, things were fixed, Grandma's bread rose perfectly, and the season's first round of vegetables ripened. And I marveled at how no one would ever know what my grandmother had really done to terraform Mars. But I would have to figure out how to convince the scientists to put gifts out for the fairies on Mars. What a fascinating story. I, I love it. That's unlike anything I've uh, heard or read before, which is stunning. I, I really is that, is that good? <laughs> no, it's it's it really good. good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a, like a folklore in a realistic sci-fi scenario is wonderful. It was, re- it was, it was a real... It was a real delight for me. Two things that I really love. Cute. Um, uh, yep. The, the sci-fi elements really reminded me of a book called Feed by Matthew Tobin. I've not uh, read it. Okay. Which, which is a good thing because I absolutely fucking adore that book. But that has that same feel. And I, I got it really strongly in your short story in the same way I did in a full book. So oh, cool. excellent work at getting that. Okay, yeah, this is obviously the logical progression. <laughs> and it made it made that feel like super it, almost like black mirrory oh wow i i can see where that yeah i can see how this tech happened and having the older generation be absolutely infuriated with what is obviously genius level tech was mm. absolutely spot on the grandma character was amazing the grandma character yeah it was a little was hard to make her like important to the mission and still homey and not really good but she's a fabric chemist not a computer person but um i was thinking of how i mean i'm not sure quite how the folklore you guys might know better than me how the folklore rose but whenever people draw fairies they're often they often look like you know what they lived among in nature so the flowers etc and then but i and then i suddenly thought but does that mean that Mars's fairies would just be like clumps of rock and cranky little potatoes? 
<laughs> and so, the, like, I became obsessed with the whole fairies on the fairies on Mars, how they got there, whether they would help or hurt. And so, that's kind of been just kicking around in the back of my brain for a while. I think it's a wonderful idea. I, it, it's the kind of idea that you you hear, and then you're like, oh, of course, that's great. Yeah, just it really clicks. The the you mentioned that it was um sort of difficult to weave the grandmother character into a terraforming expedition. I really liked the way that you did that with the, the as you say, the uh, textile chemist. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was a really interesting way to get some kind of lineage into this, into this like uh, folklore believing family. Mm, uh, yes. As you said, her earliest prototypes were inherited uh, cloth and sheets and linen. Um, yeah, the only thing is somebody's gonna, if if somebody's probably going to call me on the fact that grandma would never have used the linen like that. <laughs> perhaps not. She wouldn't destroy her own sheet, her grandmother's sheets on a prototype, but uh, it felt right at the moment. She struck me as a very practical woman, so if it happened to be the, exactly the right kind of linen, perhaps? Ah, maybe okay, I'll buy that. Simple. Yeah. Um, I, I liked her a lot. She was very likable from from the get-go. And just in terms of the way that you like uh, structured the story as well, the um, uh, beginning with the uh, the installation of Wi-Fi killed the fairies. Mm. Already, you've got a, a massive hook that people are fascinated to find out more about. Um, I think it was a really good way to start the story, and then you completely delivered on it and expanded the concept well. So I think I think that's an excellent short story that I really enjoyed listening to. So thank you. Thank you guys. Yeah, that was really fun. I've got really, really caught with this uh, idea about fairies on Mars now. Yeah. <laughs> and I need further stories with different atmospheres and how they affect the fairies. Cause I know there's mm-hmm. a planet where it rains diamonds, isn't there? So I need, I need <laughs> diamond fairies. <laughs> oh, yeah. In the meantime, you should just watch Steven Universe. Oh, I mean, hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for this episode of The Tiny Bookcase. Remember to subscribe, otherwise you're going to miss out on the future fun. Also, tell a friend. If you like this episode, link them to it. We'd be tremendously grateful. You can follow us on Twitter at Bookcase Tiny, Facebook at The Tiny Bookcase, and Instagram at Bookcase Tiny for updates. Speaking of supporting the podcast, well, magic can only take one so far. The Tiny Bookcase is supported by the generosity of its patrons. Those kind souls have really kept my belly full the last year. Let's cast a spell for them, shall we? For uh, Magnificent Beardery, let's cast the Chinicus Folliculale spell on Gary Laird. For rich ginger tones on the scalp, let us cast the Orangi Hedondo spell for Scott Byrne. And for general fabulousness, why not the Ulala la Mother spell on Matthew McLaren? How do you come up with that shit, man?